today we will be in Hebrews chapter 8. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 8, today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be answering a question. It's going to be a very, very important question. It's going to have a lot of far-reaching consequences that I want, so I really want you to pay attention to this today. The question we're going to be addressing today is how new is the new covenant? How new is the new covenant? You see, most in mainstream Christianity today see the new covenant as something that's completely new. And for this reason, they believe that everything from the Old Testament goes away unless it is restated again in the New Testament. The idea is that we can safely ignore the Old Testament basically entirely and still be able to understand what God wants from us as believers today. They see the Old Testament, and especially the law of God, as simply interesting information, but not something that's applicable to our lives today. So the question we're going to be asking, is this understanding correct? Is the new covenant completely new, throwing off all traces of the old covenant? In short, does a new covenant mean the law of God no longer applies today? So stay with me today as we prove all things, as it says in Scripture, and search out the answer to this essential question. So to begin, let's read Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 13 together. That's Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Read that with me. It says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So let's go ahead and open this service in prayer today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to open your words and study them. And Father, this is a very controversial passage, a passage that really trips up many believers in you today, including myself at one time. And Father, I pray that as we seek to understand this scripture, that you would help us to make it fit with the rest of scripture. Help us to um, come to this with an open mind. And uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work through the words that are brought today and that they would challenge, that they would edify, and that you would just be glorified in everything we do and say today. In the name of your Son, Yeshua, I pray. Amen. So to begin, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through to start with the mainstream interpretation of this passage. And this is more or less what I used to understand just a few short years ago that this passage meant. And obviously, just as kind of a disclaimer here, there is going to be some variation between interpretations of pretty much any passage you go to, from person to person, from church to church, from group to group. So what I'm, what I'm about to present here, as, as far as mainstream, the mainstream understanding of this verse and this passage goes, I'm not 
I don't purport to be representing every possible interpretation and maybe someone's going to be listening to this later and be like, that's not quite exactly what I believe or that's not exactly what I've heard. So what I'm going to be trying to do today is I'm going to present what my understanding of this kind of was as far as the mainstream understanding goes and what from my experience it seems that most in, in mainstream Christianity today believe. But it may or, not, may or may not be exactly what you've heard, but I'm, that, that's basically what I'm going to be trying to do for now. So, mainstream Christianity today, first of all, assumes that the Old Covenant is roughly contained in what we know as the Old Testament, or at least the Law of Moses. And the New Covenant is what we call the New Testament, beginning with Yeshua's death. So in other words, what ends up happening is they take the whole of Scripture and they basically divide it into two parts. You've got the Old Covenant, you've got the Old System, and you've got the New Covenant with the New System. So that's what kind of ends up happening. Number two, the idea is that God found fault with the Old Covenant. And typically, this is, um, this is they, this it's kind of considered to be the law of Moses, and that's what's contained in the Old Covenant. The idea is that that was a burden, and it was a curse. And although in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the idea is God expected believers to keep that Old Covenant, what ended up happening, the understanding is, is that when they actually tried that in real life, they found out, oh, you know what, this is way too hard to keep. No one can actually do this. So when they tried it in real life, God found out that, you know what, this, this isn't really realistic. So there was some problems with this old covenant. And that brings us to our third point, And that is that God was forced because of the problems with the old covenant to correct those faults. The, basically, because the old covenant didn't work and because it was too difficult to keep, the idea is God replaced it with the new covenant, which didn't have those same problems. And the idea is that now that we have that new covenant, which they would say replaces that old covenant, now the old faulty covenant is obsolete and no longer applies. So under the new covenant, it's understood, the law goes away. So now believers don't have to worry about keeping it anymore. So as I said earlier, this is no longer the way I interpret this passage because I don't believe it fits with the rest of scripture. I, I believe it's inconsistent with the contextual flow leading into this passage. And that's what I'm going to try to demonstrate today. Um, it, I think, I think that's, it's just really important to, when we start, to look at the context of the passage and see, does this actually make sense with the context leading into it? And that brings me to my first point that we're going to be talking about today, is that in, in order to interpret scripture correctly, whenever you're interpreting scripture, what you have to start with is context. You always start with context, and then you move to the interpretation of the passage you're dealing with, and from there, you see how that interpreted passage applies to your life. And one um, individual I was sitting under a while back dub this method the CIA method. So before we start, I'm going to just kind of go through this real quick just to kind of lay the foundation for what we're going to be talking about today. Each letter of that acronym, CIA, stands for Context, Interpretation, Application. Each of those letters build on each other, and that's the point I want you to take away today, brethren. So I work in construction, as most of you know, and on a daily basis, I have the opportunity to see buildings being built from the ground up. And it's very, very interesting. And, and it's almost on a daily basis, I get to go see all these different jobs, see how they're being built. And it turns out that some jobs go better than others. Some end up in quite, quite, quite disastrous, unfortunately. <laughs> but with every building that works, it always goes in this order. The contractors begin by pouring the foundation. They lead after that by framing the main structure and after that they lay the roof and any attempt to build a building in any other order never works as you can imagine it never works to build that building in any other order context forms the foundation 
of our understanding scripture. This is the same concept. You, you can bring this, this analogy from construction and I want to bring it into the way we approach scripture because context forms the foundation for understanding the passage. It's like the, that, that basement, as, as it were, that, that forms the foundation. And without that basement, without that foundation of context, the whole structure of your understanding that you build on top of that won't be built correctly. It's going to be lopsided. It's going to be in the wrong spot. It's not going to be square. It's not going to work. And when you build on top of, once you have that context laid, you build on top of that your interpretation. It's kind of the whole point of what you're doing. That's your study. It's what you're interpreting that passage to mean. You're trying to figure out what does that passage mean. But, and obviously that's the whole point of what you're doing, but just like when you build a building, it's, it's so important that that starts on the context. You build that on top of your context. If you remove your interpretation from your context, what you end up happening is that you have no stable platform on which to build your interpretations. You come up with all sorts of crazy outcomes. And finally, once you have your context, once you have your interpretation, you build on top of those things your application. What is application? Application is how the passage applies to your life. Just like interpretation, application must be firmly connected and built upon the layers of study beneath it or else it's not going to work properly. If I don't put my roof on top of my main structure, and if I don't put my main structure on top of my context, it's not going to work. And if your application is, is omitted entirely, if I don't even have a roof on that structure, you can imagine the building is basically not worth anything in real life. And it's the same thing when you're interpreting and trying to get an understanding of scripture. All three of these things are vital to correctly interpreting and applying scripture. However, when it comes to interpreting this specific passage that we're dealing with today in Hebrews chapter 8, I believe mainstream Christianity fails to give proper attention, and this is myself included, I, I failed before I came to this understanding, I believe, to give proper attention to the very first foundational step, and that is context. So as we begin our study of this passage today, that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with context and trying to lay the foundation that this passage rests upon. So although, I, unfortunately, I don't have time to go through the entire book of Hebrews leading up to this today. And if you want to do that later, that'd be a good thing for you to do and just try to understand what it is that, that is being said all the way up to chapter 8. But what I, what I can do is try to help you understand at least the following. So first of all, in the previous chapter, what Paul has been arguing for is the superiority of Yeshua's priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. And if you're watching this later, of course, Yeshua is the Hebrew pronunciation of Jesus. So in the previous chapter, Paul showed how Melchizedek would, um, is an example of a priesthood that was separate from and superior to the Levitical priesthood. So basically, if you think, think of yourself as an Israelite in Paul's day, when I say priest, if you're an Israelite back in that day, what are you going to be thinking about? We're well, going to be thinking about the Levite priesthood that's active in the temple at that time. However, what Paul's trying to explain is that there's a precedent, there's a pattern in the, in the Old Testament for a priesthood that's separate, and not only separate, but better than the Levit Levitical priesthood. And that pattern is found with Melchizedek. And then he goes on to quote Old Testament prophecies that predicted that the Messiah would be the same kind of priest Melchizedek was. He, he quotes passages that say that, that the Messiah would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So basically building upon that, thus the argument is, is that 
And those who understood Old Testament prophecies at that time should not only have seen a possibility for uh, priests that would later build upon the pattern of Melchizedek after the order of Melchizedek, but they also, in fact, should have expected that the Messiah would be after that order. And that, they, that the, the Messiah would come would be a priest that was not only separate from the Levitical priesthood and that he wasn't a Levite, but it also would be superior to the priesthood that was on the, the, the Levitical priesthood that is laid out in the Torah. And at the tail end of, this, of the chapter, Paul lays another reason why Yeshua's ministry is better. He mentions that Yeshua's priesthood is better because the Le Levitical priests sin. So I want you to take a look. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 7. Might be on the same page. Might have to flip a page back there. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to take a look at verse 26. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26 for this second reason that Paul lays out that we're going to cover today. It says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Obviously, this is talking about Yeshua and his priesthood. Who needeth not daily, as those high priests, the Levitical high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he, Yeshua, did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, and that's that oath that he's referring to is God's promise that his Messiah would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he says that the word of that oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated for other, evermore. So in other words, what Paul's saying is that Paul's pointing out that the earthly priests have to offer sacrifices, not only for the people's sins, but also for their own sins. And this would have they, and they would have had to keep offering it over and over again. In other words, no single sacrifice that the Levite priests offered was sufficient to cover the sins of the people because every day, every year, they would constantly over and over and over have to continue offering sacrifices. And this, of course, is a stark contrast from the Messiah's offering because when the Messiah came, he offered his offering only once. It was final. And also, it's a contrast with the Messiah's sinlessness, which is contrasted with the priest's sinfulness. So in short, throughout this chapter, Paul has been arguing that Yeshua's priesthood is so much better than the Levite priesthood laid out in the Torah. The Levite priests, Paul says, had problems. Or you could say, another word you could use is that they had faults. And this, of course, does not take away from the value of the Levite priests in God's plan. They had a very important role in, as God laid out in the Torah for them to, to, to play. And, um, and it's not like God made a mistake when he laid out those instructions. But the problem is that anytime you let man do anything, when you put man in charge of anything, you're going to have problems. Not, there's no such thing as a human anything that's perfect. You, you put a human in charge of it, you let a human do it, you're going to have problems because humans are sinful, humans are greedy, humans have problems, humans have faults. However, this, of course, is not the case for the Messiah. The Messiah's priesthood is perfect because he doesn't have those human faults. So the difference between these two priesthoods is a subject of what Paul has been discussing as we move into chapter 8. In the first five verses of chapter 8, Paul continues his argument that Yeshua's priesthood is better than the Levites. And now he gives us an additional reason for why that is. 
Reason number three, Yeshua is in heaven. He says Yeshua's priesthood is better because he is a priest in the true tabernacle. The tabernacle in heaven. Read with me Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now for the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. This is the summation. This is the, the whole point of what we're trying to say. He says, We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man also have somewhat to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve as an example and a shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that they'll make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. So as we can see here, Paul's continuing his pattern from, ch from chapter 7 that we read there. In verse 1, when Paul calls, calls Yeshua once again a high priest. And of course, this is no surprise that Paul is continuing his train of thought from, from the previous chapter. Because what does Paul say? He says, this is the summary. He says, this is the sum of what he's been saying earlier. However, this time he points out how Yeshua is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He's laying out yet another reason for why Yeshua's priesthood is better than the Levite priesthood. In verse 1, it says, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So since he's now a high priest in heaven, Paul says Yeshua can now minister, or that means to kind of serve as a high priest, in what he calls the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Did you know that there's a tabernacle in heaven? And the one that's on earth is simply, Paul says, a shadow of that. Paul says Yeshua is now ministering in that true tabernacle that is in heaven. A priest's job, Paul continues in verse 3 through 4, is to offer sacrifices. Read with me verse 3. It says, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. So, in other words, Paul's saying that the high priest is the whole, the whole role of a priest is to offer sacrifices, right? And that makes sense. We can understand that as we read the Torah. However, Paul says that there's already priests in his day the Levites, on earth that offered sacrifices just like the law instructed him to. So in verse 4 it says, For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So that's what Paul's saying is, there's no reason for Yeshua to come and offer those same sacrifices himself. Because there's already a priesthood on earth that's already doing that. So Yeshua doesn't need to come and do that too, because there's already a priesthood that does that. But what he does say in verse 3 is that since the role of the priest is to offer sacrifices, Yeshua must also offer something. Verse 3 there again, it says, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have someone also to offer. So what Paul's kind of saying is that, I mean, there's no reason for, for Yeshua to come and offer, excuse me, those same sacrifices that the priests on earth are already offering. Right, But the whole point of being a priest is to offer sacrifices, is to offer gifts and, and, and offerings, as he says. So, so, in, so Paul's logic is that, there, there mu that Yeshua must be offering some sort of gift, even if it's not the same gifts on earth that the Levites are already offering. And for now, he actually kind of leaves that statement open-ended and doesn't really explain what that sacrifice is that the Messiah is offering. However, he does clarify that in chapter 9, when I believe he explains the sacrifice that Yeshua offers 
is his body and blood, and that Yeshua is the perfect sacrificial lamb. So that is the offering Yeshua offers, and we find that out later in chapter 9. But for now, Paul ends up actually validating his statement that Yeshua is now serving in the tabernacle in heaven by quoting a passage from the Torah. Verse 5 says, Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. So it's no surprise to us to see that Paul here quotes an Old Testament passage to validate what he's saying in this New Testament passage of Hebrews chapter 8. Did you know, one source I was, I was looking at said that there are upwards of 1,000 quotations, targums, etc. references to Old Testament passages in the New Testament. That approaches close to 40 times per book. The Old Testament positively pervades the Old Testament. Indeed, whenever you see a New Testament writer make any major point, it seems like what they always do is they go right back to the Old Testament and say, don't believe what I'm saying because I'm saying it. Believe what I'm saying because the Old Testament already said it. And you can go and validate that for yourself. And you can go read that and say, oh yeah, what he's saying is correct because the Old Testament already said it. God already said that in the Old Testament. For example, how do we know that Yeshua is the Messiah? What is the argument of the New Testament writers to prove that Yeshua is the Messiah. Well, you say, well, he did miracles, so obviously Yeshua must be the Messiah. Well, it turns out that the Antichrist is also supposed to do miracles. In fact, it says he's going to have a deadly wound in his head that's going to be healed. He's going to rise from the dead. Are you going to believe the, the Antichrist because he does miracles? No, you, that is that miracles serve a purpose and validation, but according to the New Testament writers, the way we know the Yeshua is our Messiah is because he fulfills perfectly the Old Testament messianic prophecies. That's how we know Yeshua is the Messiah. Not necessarily because he does miracles or not because he does miracles alone, but because primarily because he fulfills those Old Testament prophecies. Another example, how do we know that salvation is by faith according to the New Testament writers? According to them, not because... They said it, not because we can look necessarily look in the, Old, in the New Testament, although that is also scripture, but they said you can prove that what I'm saying is true. You can validate what I'm saying because you can look in the Old Testament and see, hey, it was, that was how Abraham was saved. Abraham had, had faith in God's promises, in God's covenant, and that was counted to him for righteousness. That's how you obtain righteousness in the Old Testament. So Paul says, why would you be surprised if you come to the New Testament it's the exact same thing? Finally, how do we know that the Messiah's blood is what covers our sins? Is it just because that's a New Testament concept and Paul said that the Messiah's blood covers our sins, so it must be true? No, Paul's argument is because you can go back and look at the Old Testament and you can see everything that was covered was covered with blood. He says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission in the Old Testament. That's how you know, that's how you can validate that what Paul's saying is true is because it's, it's built upon the foundation of the Old Testament. It's clear from these examples and, and many more that we could lay out here today that the New Testament writers relied very, very heavily on the Old Testament as the foundation for their New Testament doctrine. And it seems equally clear that without or having at least a basic understanding of the Old Testament, 
We can't expect to understand even what the New Testament writers are arguing for and what they're trying to say, because they're always going back to the Old Testament. So if you have no idea what they're talking about when they point to an Old Testament passage or they quote an Old Testament passage, how do you, do you expect to understand the argument they're trying to make? It's all but impossible to fully understand what they're trying to say. And you might be able to get kind of the idea, you might be able to put pieces together based on the context, but all the time, he's, they're always going back to the Old Testament. So it's very important to understand that foundation when you're trying to understand a New Testament passage. So here, back in Hebrews 8, Paul is referring to a few passages in the Torah where God tells Moses that the tabernacle components that he's supposed to build there on Sinai are supposed to look like the ones in the true tabernacle in heaven that he saw on Mount Sinai. So one example, turn with me to Exodus chapter 28, or I'm sorry, 26, Exodus chapter 26. So we're going to see one example of where, of, of where Paul's quoting here, and there's actually a few different passages. We also find this in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40, and also Exodus chapter 27 and verse 8, if you want to write those down, look at those later. But Paul, uh, God says this quite a few times when he's talking to Moses on the mount, because he's telling Moses, he's like, you know, I'm going to give you some instructions that you can write down here, but you know, you know what I'm talking about because you already saw the pattern in the mount. So Exodus chapter 26 and verse 30 says, And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. So God says, you saw the true tabernacle in heaven. So that's the pattern you're supposed to use when you're making the earthly one. So I can lay out all the instructions here, but if you have any questions, just remember what you saw because you already saw what it's kind of supposed to look like. So back in Hebrews chapter 8, what Paul's point is, is that the earthly priesthood is nothing more than a shadow. He said, what's a shadow? Anyone know what a shadow is? Somebody give me a definition of a shadow. What's a shadow? Somebody give me a definition of a shadow? If I make a shadow on the projector screen here, what is that? What, 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 what does that mean when I, when I say that? I'm blocking the light. But the shadow itself... Yeah, exactly. It's like it's 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 an it, it's similar to the original, but it's not exactly the same. It's missing some things, right? If I put my hand in front of the screen, you're going to see the outline of my hand on the screen, but you're not going to see the true hand. There's a lot missing there, and that's Paul's kind of Paul's point. He says that the earthly priesthood is an oversimplified, imperfect, two-dimensional representation of the real thing in heaven. This does not, of course, again, take away from the earthly priest's importance in God's plan on earth. However, it is one more reason in Paul's argument that the Messiah's priesthood is so much better than the earthly priesthood. Yeshua's priesthood, Paul says, is the real thing. It's actually the hand that you're seeing. It's the real deal. It's not the two-dimensional, imperfect representation of the real thing. Yeshua's priesthood is the real priesthood, not the shadow that the earthly priesthood was. So we just talked about a lot there. I kind of went over that pretty quickly because we got a lot to cover today. So I'm sorry for the speed at which I'm going over this. But what I want you to understand is that what Paul is saying is Yeshua's priesthood is vastly superior to the Levitical priesthood. That's what I need you to take away from this today. That is Paul's entire argument there is that Yeshua's priesthood is so much better than the Levitical one. So when we get to verse 6, I need you to keep that context in mind. When we have any question on what maybe Paul's trying to say, if there's any, 
if, if, if anything's unclear and we're like, you know, it could go one way, maybe it could go the other, we should assume, when in doubt, that Paul is continuing his train of thought, comparing the Messiah's priesthood to the Levitical one. That is what Paul has been talking about throughout the beginning of chapter 8, through chapter 7 as we covered. So when we get to verse 6 here in chapter 8, we should assume that Paul is still talking about that exact same thing. It says in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So here we can see Paul introduces yet another reason why the messianic ministry or priesthood, that's what that's referring to, is superior to the earthly priesthood. Because Yeshua is the mediator of a better covenant, he says. And so mainstream Christianity today, it's pretty widely understood, and I understood this before I came to the understanding I presently have, that the new covenant is better, that it contains better promises than the old one. That's a pretty widely understood concept today, and that's probably nothing new for you to hear. What is not widely understood, however, and what I want to bring attention to today, is that according to Scripture, there are more than one Old Covenant. As we said previously, most of mainstream Christianity today would divide Scripture into two parts, or two covenants, basically. They talk about the Old Covenant, which is the Old Testament, basically, and the New Covenant, which is the New Testament. However, when you read through the Old Testament, that is not the understanding you get. To the contrary, the Bible presents seven covenants between man and God. Seven covenants, not two. And we at Grafted Branch Church have gone through this at least once before, but I think it's important to just try to get to re go over this again because this is very, very foundational to the passage we're going to read um, here today and study in Hebrews chapter 8. So let's just go over this real quickly once again. Um, so remember the first covenant we have in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3, we have God's covenant with Adam. And of course, this includes the promise of the Messiah, who's going to bruise Satan's head. So right away, you have that promise that God says, there's coming a Redeemer, there's coming a Messiah, who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. You have the curse of the serpent, that he will go on his belly. You have the, the idea of painful childbirth and submission for women. You have the curse for men, of the curse of the ground, hard work thorns and thistles. All those things are wrapped up in this covenant. Of course, you have the idea of physical death as well that's introduced with this covenant. And a token of that, God says, is now you're going to wear clothes. You're going to have clothing. So that's a token of this covenant. The second covenant we have in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 9, is God's covenant with Noah. The instruction to be fruitful and multiply is one thing we find within this covenant. We also have, if you remember, the, the um, promise that animals, or the, the instruction that animals except, of course, for their blood, are given for food, and that they will fear humans. You also have the idea of capital punishment, where God says life for life. If someone kills man, then by man shall his blood be shed. You also have, of course, the promise that everyone remembers, that there will be no more worldwide floods. And God says you can look at the token of the rainbow, and you can know every time you see that token of a rainbow that this covenant is still in effect, that there will never be a worldwide flood that will destroy the world. Covenant number three is God's covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 and 17, and I think there's a couple other places as well you could look for. But um, this contains, of course, the blessing and the cursing, where God says, those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. You have, again, this excuse me, updated seed promise, 
which ultimately is fulfilled with the Messiah, but also has a, the short-term fulfillment as well of how Abraham's seed is going to be a multitude of people as the sand of the sea or as the stars in heaven. You also have the promise of the land promise. And God says, I'm going to give you this land where you're sojourning on right now. This land of Canaan is going to be your possession, the possession of your children. And of course, the, the token for that covenant is the token of the circumcision. And of course, we have this, this um, covenant ends up getting passed on to Isaac and gets passed on to Isaac's son, Jacob. It's just reiterated to each of those, those children. Covenant number four we have in scripture. We've already gone through three covenants. We finally get to covenant number four. And this covenant is the covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. This is where, of course, we have the Torah written down. And it's like God says that he's, he says, if you keep my covenant, which I write before you this day, and you keep my laws and my, my testimonies and my judgments and my statutes, which I command you this day, he says that I'm going to take you to be my special people. I will be your God and you will be my people, he says. It says elsewhere that here that God betrothed the nation unto himself at this point. It's like those are the marriage vows that were said. You be faithful to me and I'll be faithful to you. He says they will be, they, he, God says that, that the nation of Israel is going to be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And of course the token of this covenant is the Sabbath. God says in Exodus 31, I believe, that the Sabbath is the token of a perpetual covenant between himself and the nation of Israel. Covenant number five is the covenant with David. And in this covenant, God says that David's throne is going to be established forever and that he will always have a man to sit upon the throne of Israel. And of course, the token of this, as we find later in Jeremiah 33, God says, you'll know that this covenant goes away the day you notice that the sun and moon no longer exist, that the day and night cycle no longer occurs. That's when you know my covenant with David is gone. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet, so we know that the God's covenant with uh, David is still in play. And we have the sixth covenant, which we're going to be covering in depth today, the Messianic covenant, which we see primarily in Jeremiah 31 and a couple other passages, Hebrews 8, of course. We're going to see a passage in Ezekiel today as well that covers this new covenant. But this is also known as the new covenant. And we're going to talk more about this later on today, so I'm not going to talk too much about it right now. But the token of this covenant we find in the New Testament is baptism. And finally, the covenant that is not yet, but we can look forward to, is the covenant of peace that's spoken of in Ezekiel 37 and 34, to name a couple places. And this includes the millennial reign of the Messiah, when the lion will then lay down with the lamb, when the child will play in the adder's den, and it will be fine. And of course, we don't have time, unfortunately, to cover all these covenants in depth today. So if you haven't heard this, and maybe you're watching this later, you haven't heard any of this before, I, I, I challenge you to go and, and read some of these different passages and kind of understand that there are more than two covenants that God makes with man in Scripture. And they're all up on the screen there if you want to look them up for yourself. But when we study these covenants, what we find is that each of these covenants, first of all, contains new, better promises as compared to the last one. Number two, we find that each succeeding covenant is built upon the promises of the last covenant, that they're new and better, and this is as opposed to replacing the promises of the last. Of course, we saw this most clearly, for example, when we're dealing with the Messiah. So we have, uh, back in Genesis, God gives kind of a very brief idea of this man who will come and bruise Satan's head, and then you have with Abraham, and it kind of narrows it down, and he understands that that seed promise is connected to the promise of the Messiah. And then you go with David, and, and God says with David that the Messiah is going to be 
um, out of your line. He's going to be a king that, 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 is, that is part, as sits on the throne of Israel. So, and, and of course, that, that narrows it down more and more. So each covenant is built upon the promises of the last. And finally, what we find, number three, is that all of these covenants are prophesied to last forever. And of course, we didn't go to all these passages, but if you go to them later on, you'll find almost all of them say, right in the passage, that they're meant to last forever. And of course, this, this um, is something that is going to be debated, of course, a lot by mainstream Christianity today. And, so, and because, of course, as we talked about earlier, the belief is that, especially the Mosaic Covenant, at least, goes away and doesn't last forever. However, let's go, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. This is a really important groundwork for what we're going to be covering today in Hebrews chapter 8 when trying to determine what the correct understanding of the passage is. Because here in Leviticus chapter 26, God just finished laying out a long list of curses that will come upon those who break his covenant that are laid out in the Torah by refusing to keep his commandments. He says, if you refuse to keep my commandments, this is what's going to happen to you. So if you take a look at, at Leviticus 26 and verse 33 there, it says in this verse that if the children of Israel continue to break God's commandments, it says that he's going to ultimately punish them. It says in verse 33 there, he's ultimately going to punish them if they continue to break his commandments by scattering, it says, you among the heathen, and I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. In other words, I'm going to scatter you, and your land is going to be empty of you. They're not going to be in your land anymore. That's, that's this major judgment that God says he's going to bring upon them. And this, is, this prediction that is made here in Leviticus 26 becomes very important later on. So I want you to kind of stick that in your back pocket for now, brethren, and we can come back to that later. But, but, the, but this is an also very important context for where we pick it up in verse 40 when we see a promise that God makes for after this judgment has occurred. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 26 in verse 40 there it says, for if they shall confess their iniquity, this is the Israelites, after they have sinned and God has kicked them out of the land, he says, in the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary to me, that I also have walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, what does it say? Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac. And also my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. So here we see God promises to remember his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Particularly, he says, the land promise. He says that even after you've been scattered from your land, my promise is still available when you come back and repent. My promise to you, and especially he, he he puts special emphasis on the land promise here with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I will bring you back to that land. He says this covenant, particularly the land promise in this verse in particular, that that's never going to go away, that it's going to last forever, even despite the fact that this is after they have broken the covenant. And as we're going to see that even more clearly in the next verse, in verse 43, it says, The land also shall be left of them, and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, while it lieth desolate without them. And they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity, because even because they despise my judgments, and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet for all that, when they shall be in the land of their enemies, so they're scattered, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them, to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will for their sakes, what? What does it say? It says, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth 
out of the land of Egypt, in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. So God swears by himself. He says, here we see a mention, another covenant that he says he's going to remember. The covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. Let me ask you a question. What was that covenant that he made with the children of Israel that he brought out of the land of Egypt? What covenant did he make with them in particular? Well, that would be, of course, the Mosaic Covenant. Obviously, the Mosaic Covenant is what he's referring to here. So we see that God promises that his covenant, specifically here he talks about the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he talks about his covenant with Moses, that they will both last forever. The promises still apply to them. They're still ready to be, to, that God will still keep that promise that he's made with them when Israel turns and repents and turns back to God. It's a very important context of what we're going to see in verse 6 through 13 here in our passage. So we come back to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Again, Paul is talking about this newest covenant. He's talking about covenant number, number 6 here. And he says that the Messiah's role as the mediator of the Messianic covenant is one more reason why his ministry is superior to the Levites' ministries. That's what I want you to gather. Reason number four that Paul's talking about, right in the context of everything he's been talking about in the previous chapter and the beginning of chapter 8, Messiah is the mediator of a new covenant. This new covenant is better. This new covenant is established upon better promises, and that is a reason why the Messianic priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. So as we come to verse 7 here, it says this is probably the beginning of where my understanding of this passage and many in mainstream Christianity's understanding of this passage starts to go downhill in a hurry. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. It's very important, in this verse especially, to read this verse very, very closely, okay? Because again, as I said, this is a very controversial verse. So, to help you out, I've put the verse on the screen there for you so we can read it together. What does it say? It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So first of all, what I want to remind you again is what the mainstream interpretation of this verse is. I want to go ahead and lay that out one more time just so you can remember. So what is the mainstream interpretation of this verse? The mainstream interpretation is that Paul is saying that the first covenant, which they of course would argue would be the Mosaic covenant, had faults. And thus God was prompted to make a second covenant, which they understood to be the new Messianic covenant, to correct the problems that existed in the first. In other words, the idea is that Paul is saying that the, the fact the new covenant exists is actually proof that the old covenant had problems. So you read that, for if, they, if that first covenant had been faultless, in other words, if there, if there wasn't any problems with that first covenant, then should no place have been sought for a second. So there wouldn't have been any reason to create that second covenant. That is the mainstream interpretation of that verse. However, what I want you to see today is that when you very carefully go over this verse, and you understand the context of this verse, you understand the context of the rest of Scripture, this understanding raises a massive series of red flags right on the surface that we should notice, first of all, when we're trying to interpret this verse. First of all, this understanding seems to assume the existence of only two covenants. The first covenant in the Old Testament and the second covenant in the New Testament. And of course, what have we just spent the last several minutes talking about? We've talked about how Scripture refers to seven covenants between God and man. Indeed, the true first covenant that God made with man and God 
is what? The covenant, not with Moses, but the covenant with Adam. So that doesn't even make any sense to understand if Paul's talking about a first covenant, it wouldn't be the Mosaic covenant, it would be the covenant with, with Adam. Or maybe you want to refine that and say maybe Paul's talking about covenants with the children of Israel. Well, then you'd have to go back to Abraham, not the covenant with Moses. Secondly, this interpretation, the second problem we're going to see is that this interpretation implies that there's something wrong with part of the Bible. And I, I hope you, want, you see that this is a major problem with this understanding. Whenever you've got an interpretation that implies there's a problem with part of your Bible, that's a problem. This interpretation implies that the Old Testament, or at a minimum, the Mosaic Covenant contained within the Old Testament, depending on whether you see a distinction there, the, this interpretation implies that that covenant was faulty, that God made mistakes on that covenant that were so egregious, in fact, that he had to scrap the whole thing and try again. Of course, we know that the Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, right? I don't worship a God, and I hope you don't worship a God that makes mistakes. The God I worship is perfect. The God I worship does not make mistakes. I hope that's the same God you worship. The God I worship does not make mistakes. He is perfect. Who makes mistakes? Who messes things up? It's man that messes things up, not God. So when we see faults, who should we think about? God or man? It's man that messes things up. It's man that has faults. And of course, that leads us into our final red flag. And that is the interpretation that mainstream Christianity holds to upsets the whole contextual flow of what we've been talking about. Let me explain. Let me ask you a question. What has Paul been talking about that has faults in the context? What were we talking about that has faults in the context? A covenant? The Levitical priesthood, exactly. The earthly priesthood is what Paul says has faults. Turn back again to Hebrews chapter 7. Let's read this again. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. It says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those Levitical high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, which have faults, you could say. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Paul has been, in this context, talking about and contrasting the faulty priesthood, the, the faulty Levitical priesthood, with the perfect heavenly priesthood. Paul says in verse 7, or chapter 7 in verse 26, that it's the earthly priests that were sinful and had infirmities. In other words, they were the ones that had faults. In addition, in the context leading up to this verse, Paul's comparing two things, right? He hasn't been comparing, in the context at least yet, beforehand, he hasn't been talking about a first and second covenant. He's been talking about a first and a second priesthood, right? The Levitical priesthood and the, the Messianic priesthood. He's comparing a first and second, the first ministry and the second ministry, the earthly priesthood and the messianic priesthood. So at this point, you should be looking back at that verse and being a little bit maybe confused, being like, you know, this verse does seem to be talking about a covenant, though. So why, why is it that we see all these problems with such an interpretation if that's what the verse says? Did Paul make a mistake? What, what, what is wrong here? So I want you to read this verse very carefully again. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. I want you to look at that word covenant very closely because that seems to be the root of all our problems. Do you, do you see anything different with that word covenant up there than the rest of those words? It's italicized. The word covenant in this verse, at least if you have a King James Bible, 
is italicized. The reason the King James Version italicizes these, th this word and words in general in that, in that Bible is, is for a very specific reason. So normally when you're reading, say, a novel or you're reading other, you know, contemporary English print, what you're going to see is that people use italics either maybe to denote like a title or something like that, but generally when it looks like this, the, the reason it's used is to put emphasis on a word. That's normally the reason you see that. However, the King James Version uses that for a very different reason. The reason the King James uses italics is to alert the reader of an insertion of a word by the translators. In other words, the word covenant in the original manuscripts, if you'll read the Greek behind this verse, does not contain the word covenant at all. In reality, this verse actually lacks a subject altogether. It just says, for if that first. It doesn't say covenant at all. So let's go ahead and read that verse without the inserted word, and we'll see if that, see if that gives us a kind of different understanding. So it says, for if that first had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So no matter how much, full, uh, how much faith you have in the King James translators or any translator at all, and how well and how smart they were and able to translate, this word is not a translation, it's an addition. They simply added this word into scripture because they thought it made it easier for us to read. Because, of course, the verse seems to kind of lack a subject, so they're like, hmm, what do we think the subject of this verse is? What we think is the covenant, so we'll go ahead and, and insert that word in there because we think it makes sense and it fits with our understanding of the verse. However, because of the red flags that we've been discussing the last few minutes, I would argue here that this was a bad insertion. That Paul is not talking about a first and second covenant, but instead it's, he's talking about a first and second ministry, because that's what he's been contrasting in the previous verses. So when, if you're reading that and it didn't have the word covenant, you'd have to ask, well, what, is, what would be the subject that Paul is talking about? What would be the first thing he's talking about? What is, the, what, what, what is the first and second thing he's been contrasting in the previous verses? Well, you'd go back and you'd read the verses of chapter 7, and you'd read the, the, verses and, and the first six verses of chapter 8, and you'd realize that he's talking about a first and second ministry, not a first and second covenant. So, instead, the way you'd read it is something more like this. You'd read, for if that first ministry had been faultless, that should no place have been sought for a second. If you even back that up a few verses, it says, But now if he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he's a mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first ministry had been faultless, that should no place have been sought for a second. And I believe this understanding fits a whole lot better into the contextual flow of what we're dealing with today to say nothing of the rest of Scripture. Not convinced yet? Well, we are going to go ahead and take a break now. And as we keep reading in the next few verses in the next session, we're going to see that there's actually even more evidence for this interpretation being the correct one and not the mainstream one. So let's go ahead and close in prayer.